1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 2016, the city of Mumbai was blanketed in toxic smog. The source? Fires at the nearby dumping ground of Dayanar, the country's oldest. The DNR fire became an embarrassment for Mumbai, coming right before international expo meant to announce the city to international investors and businesses. Law enforcement immediately blamed scrap dealers who lived alongside the landfill. These dealers are men and women, poor, sometimes quite young, who comb the mountain for waste that can be resold, metal, plastic, cloth, and if they're lucky, gold and jewelry. Samia Roy's Mountain Tales, Love and Loss, a Municipality of Castaway Belongings looks into the lives of a few of these pickers as they try to survive among the mountains of trash as government officials and judges squabble above them trying to figure out what to do. Samia Roy is a journalist and activist based in Mumbai. In 2010, she co-founded Vandana Foundation to support the livelihoods of Mumbai's poorest micro-entrepreneurs. Through this, she met the community who depend on DNR, her writing has appeared in Forbes India Magazine, WSJ.com, and Bloomberg News, among others. And she contributed an essay, a chapter to Dharavi, The Cities Within, an anthology of essays on Asia's largest slum. In this interview, we'll talk about the trash mountains of Danar, the families that live there, and how they navigate life on the fringes of one of India's largest cities. So, Samia, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, maybe let's start with a basic question. Where is Deonar, and what "quote unquote" role does it play in the city of Mumbai? Uh,
1: Nicholas, thank you very much for having me on your show. It's an um, absolute pleasure to be here and to be speaking with you. Um, so Deonar um, is at the edge of the city. It's very much in the city, as you can imagine. As the city as has expanded, it's when Deonar was planned um, in 1890. Six. Um, it was seen as outside the city. It's referred to as the village of Deonar in colonial records. So very much something outside the city. And yet, over these 120, you know, two twenty-three years, um, it has um the city has has grown and it 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 has almost enveloped these dumping grounds. They are about um, 300, they they were originally 823 acres, but they are now about 300 acres. And when you think of a landfill, you think it literally means that something, it's, subterranean right something is dug and garbage is filled into it but in fact over this one and a quarter centuries what's happened is that garbage is it was a small sw- what was a swampy marsh meant to be filled with garbage has now become garbage mountains that are 120 feet in height like 18 story buildings um all the city's detritus. and I remember when I first walked there seeing everything we consumed almost like a map of our lives uh, mashed with with, with mud you know just uh, compacted with mud making these mountains that were like 20 stories high like buildings um and it's at the edge of this island city and so uh, you know the sea the creeks surrounds it on three sides and these garbage mountains edged by the sea made of everything that we have consumed from um you know um, food boxes to clothes to shoes to uh, plastic bottles of water to strawfo cups of coffee and i always heard, and and i I always heard stories of how gold came there, jewelry came there, notes came there, purses came there, um, metal wires, gadgets, everything that we consumed and the changing patterns of everything we consumed ended up there. So the role that it plays is that it just consumes everything that we cast away, allowing us to consume more and acquire more.
0: (laughs) So DNR is is Mumbai's kind of oldest uh, dumping ground. Could you talk a bit about the history um, that led to the creation of, of the landfill?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, it, it, my, uh, someone was telling me the other day that it's it's the this place is at this point bookended by two two epidemics, two plagues, if we may call it so. So this particular dumping ground um was planned in 1896 when a plague raged in the city. Um at that point, um it was supposed to have come uh, with rats on a trading ship from China, and so it was getting the rats were carrying it through, you know, filth, um, you know, garbage in the city, and um, you know, as the city was growing, the colonial city at that point, um, there was there was increasing garbage, and the rats were spreading the illness through the through the city. And the colonial authorities at the time also tried quarantine, and um, they tried searching people for buboes, physical searches which led to a lot of um, unrest in the city. It led to migration from the city. It led to violence. It led to riots. It led to murder of colonial authorities in Pune, which is a neighboring city. And so that increasing unrest uh, became almost, you know, difficult to deal with. And so the government decided um, that it was better to just evacuate trash from the city, um, which which became a way of dealing with the plague. And so they acquired this marshy swamp of, of, of around 823 acres in June 1897, if I remember correctly. And uh, um, they made a train called the Katra train or the trash train, um, a train line and, and garbage uh, wagons uh, or train wagons filled with the city's garbage began going there twi- once in the morning, once in the evening, filled with all the city's trash, allowing the city to be clean, allowing it to be rebuilt and allowing trash to fill up in the swamp. Um, And and that is how Deonar was planned and the colonial authorities at the time thought this this would be a profitable scheme very soon because in 25 years when the swamp was filled, they would rent it out to farmers because the the garbage would fertilize the soil and farmers would pay them up to one lakh rupees every year. What happened instead was that, as a, as it happens often with garbage, that this place just became a forgotten outpost of the city, um, and uh, until until many many years later, when the government court cases began, and the government turned around and found that this was no more just a swamp; it was in fact garbage mountains.
0: And it's interesting. I remember reading that chapter of your book, and um, and kind of there's some interesting parallels to today when it comes to public health and governments trying to figure out how to handle public health. I think, um, I believe was it, there's a chapter where uh, I think the community goes, to the colonial authorities be like, you have to, you have to rescind all of these quarantine orders because people are very scared. They're freaking out. And the city will like, I guess, go into riots if you don't, which, which of course leads to some interesting parallels to today's um, public health orders.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, um, at, le- at this time, I think people were asked to stay home, but at the time, people were being taken to hospital for quarantine, um, families of plague victims were being kept in hospital to be quarantined. And, um, you know, in in Indian, there was greater sort of, what do you say, um, Miss. it led to misunderstandings because the colonial government, you know, the, the municipal government was colonial and British and the uh, people they of the city were mostly Indian, right? So that increased the mistrust. And uh, there were all kinds of uh, sort of uh, beliefs that they were being taken to hospital only to die, uh, you know, that they would be kept there alone. Um, and so people were actually protecting ill people with, say, knives to, so that they would not be taken to hospital. Um, and and eventually the colonial government realizes that the best way is to work with um with with residents of the city um so they, they 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 sort of rescind their quarantine measures and they begin to work with with residents of the city and i think this is something that maybe um even this time in the quarantine in involving city residents um in in these measures has certainly helped to ensure their effectiveness so there are certainly parallels with that 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 plague and this one i would say
0: so let's move on to the to the to the scrap dealers, the pickers living in DNR. What exactly are they doing in the landfill, and how are they earning a living day to day?
1: So, sure. um, so they they will begin by just oh, walking up the garbage mountains. Um, at one point, now it's reduced, but at one point there would be something like well 1500 like 1500 or um 1200 1, more than 1, a gar- thousand trucks filled with garbage so you can coming in and emptying on these garbage mountains which were they just pressed down with mud to hold them in place right so you can imagine that incessant coming of garbage uh, through the day and through the night and waste pickers would basically be um, you know just filling their, filling this garbage Um, into their, everything they could into their arms and on their heads and bringing it back down um, into the little lanes that they live in just below the garbage mountains and then come home and sort through it plastic for plastic, different kinds of plastic, the thick and the thin um, and uh, maybe cloth scraps. The the older waste pickers would often pick cloth scraps but as we began to wear more ready-made clothes, cloth scraps uh, which came from tailor's shops shrank on the garbage mountains Um, Um, but they may also pick little bits of uh, glass um, as one of the characters in the book was a glass trader, Jahangir. They may pick metal, which is the most expensive of of the finds on the garbage mountains because you can resell it, but it's also quite elusive because it stays under lighter garbage such as plastic. Um, So they they pick all of these different things and then sell it to garbage traders who then sell it on and from where it may be exported or it might be squashed and made into new things like say uh, plastic might be made into t-shirts it might be made into new bottles it might be made into pellets (laughs) or or, uh, you know packaging Uh, and so they sell it and uh, they earn what they can by by selling this as raw material like by the kilo, plastic by the kilo or glass by the kilo and this is how they make a living every day and every once in a while mashed in all the garbage they may find a bit of somebody for, somebody's forgotten notes, currency notes, they may find um, ready-to-eat packages of food that they may cook and eat, um, they may find clothes that they wear so it's it's money, but it's also their, their life is intertwined with this place and this
0: garbage. So to kind of talk about you and your story a little bit, what brought you in contact with the people of Danar?
1: Oh yeah. Um, so I was a journalist for many years. Then in 2010, I started I, I started a nonprofit um, to work on um, supporting livelihoods of micro entrepreneurs across the city and in some rural areas where farmer suicides are going on. And so we used to give microfinance loans um to um you know um micro entrepreneurs across the city so it could be cobblers it could be you know women who make lunches do some tailoring work so maybe a loan to buy a tailoring machine or uh, people who make all the shoes in the city uh, people who make uh, Bombay's famous street food um, so we were lending uh, to all of them as a non-profit to grow their businesses and in 2013 uh, we began getting the waste because of Deunar, and I was immediately skeptical that like what kind of business is this what kind of place is this I had a about it but never seen it and i thought our loans would go bad because i said that you can only pick what you can with our hand with your hands how are you going to grow your business and they began getting like they were like you have no idea like this is um this is never going to run out of work this is like this amazing growing you know, opportunity waste is never going to reduce. Waste is always going to increase. These garbage mountains have grown before our eyes, so we are going to grow our business. You have, you know, they began bringing photographs to show me. They began bringing videos. Then I began following them. At first, just as a microfinance lender but then in 2016 when the fires happened and waste because you know cases police cases get began getting um, made against waste because for lighting these fires so i thought that yes it's possible that they lit these fires i don't know but i thought i would write a magazine story to show that we in the city had a connection that we had made this combustible place that it was that this was now so big so huge and so combustible with so much waste lying there that waste picker said that even if you threw a say a, a cigarette it could light up in a little bit of a fire or if you see municipal records they say that this place lights up in spontaneous combustion because there is so much waste lying there City waste lying there, so I thought I would write a magazine story to show that we made this combustible place. Um, but then, as I began researching, it just grew and grew and grew, and then became, you know, this this several years long project, which became a book.
0: So let's talk about some of the individual uh, waste pickers you talk about in Mountain Tales. Um, and specifically, kind of your your book focuses on let's say one well there there, there are a few families that are kind of the focus, um, but insofar as your book has kind of a few central characters, it's people like um, Farzana, it's people like Haider Ali, it's people like Jahangir, um, this family who's trying to kind of figure out how to live um, among among the trash mountains. I wonder if you might kind of talk about a few of um, a few of those waste pickers, kind of what's what's driving them personally
1: sure i think what's try um you're right i mean it does um there were four families that I followed but most of all i would say that it was hyder ali's hyder ali's family and his daughter farzana around whom this uh, book is centered uh They're trying to make a better life for themselves. Ali first came to me uh, among the first waste pickers who took loans from us. And his plan was to do something other than picking waste. He had learned embroidery as a child, worked in an embroidery workshop, (laughs) and in the end come to work on the garbage mountains because they never ran out of work. Um, He had made many, many attempts to leave and to do something else, but... in the end continued to work on the garbage mountain. So he again wanted to take a loan and he wanted to leave um, and start an embroidery workshop. And i so I thought I would write about him but it became increasingly clear to me as I began reporting the book that the book would be about his daughter Farzana Uh, Farzana was born at the feet of the garbage mountains soon after her father moved there Um, she's the sixth of his nine children Uh, and so with her we could see you know she was born at the feet of the garbage mountains uh, began walking, learned to walk on the garbage mountain slope, she found her first toys there, um, began to you know eat, eat, eat all her favorite food, found her favorite foods there, found her first pair of jeans there, all her friends were there. She would, you know, she she just couldn't leave this place. This is where she was growing. So it was almost a coming of age story. Oh, oh on the Garbage Mountains and we could see the arc of the Garbage Mountains through her because when these fires began in 2016, um, it was almost as if Farzana had inhaled these fires, which she had worked through them. She kept working. She kept picking waste, She couldn't stop, even though the fires were raging. Um, Her father was not working so much through the fires, but she was. Um, Often when I would go to their house at that point, I would see her coming back with warm metal she had collected, her feet scattered with blister by walking the burning mountains but she could not stop and that 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 seems to have had some impact on her health on her uh, um, mental health and and yet she was continuing and a pretty sort of devastating impact on her and yet she was continuing to work. So I felt that we could see the arc of the garbage mountains of the city's attempt to manage its waste through her life. And so the book really came to center around her a lot. There's a
0: good, there's a good segue here. where you talked about kind of that there's something about working on the mountain that kind of draws people to it kind of, despite people saying, no, 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 I want to leave. I want to, or I want my children to leave, get a better life get education. There's something about the nature of the community where they're living um the nature of of waste picking that makes it seems like it makes it very difficult to escape for several of the inhabitants of danar i wonder if you might get into that a little bit and maybe kind of share your thoughts as to why several of its residents seem to be stuck in a way
1: yeah i would say that for two reasons one is that the lack of social mobility um These are not people with a a, a lot of um, education. And so, you know, when you stand on the garbage mountains, there's the creek. And across the creek, you do see these gleaming new buildings that house, say, tech companies, call centers, etc. But these are not people who can take jobs like that and retain jobs like that. They don't have, uh, many of them have dropped out of school. The gravitational pull of the Kavish Mountains is pretty strong. Um, And so uh, many of them would talk to me about their their attempts to leave and take up other jobs, but their ability to to get these jobs and to last in these jobs is sort of pretty limited. Um, And also the gravitational pull of the Kavish Mountains is pretty strong. So if you were to see, uh, while there are a large number of a government school municipal schools in this ward dropout rate is really high because you can work even as a child for an hour or two on the garbage mountains and earn enough to buy a snack to buy some um you know some something to sniff and to keep working and so um or to keep your family uh, you know to keep your home running to hand over to your family so you can keep your home running uh, to buy a meal for your family to buy some uh, medicines for your family and so uh, most children in that that area begin working on the garbage mountains pretty young which we also see with Farzana like she was working on the garbage mountains pretty much since she could walk um collecting things bringing them down so her family could sell them could buy some food could buy some uh, you know supplies for the house and so they begin working there so early on that their education gets compromised, their health gets compromised um, they are often you know and they often with, with, with boys especially you see addictions which make it increasingly difficult then to leave and to do other kinds of things so it's, it's a trap from both ends where jobs in the city are also not so available to them but their ability to get those jobs is limited because this is the cycle that they're it's an intergenerational cycle also that they're stuck in of poverty of malnutrition of marginalization I suppose
0: now you know as you read through the book um, Farzana faces a lot of misfortune you know I think terrible accidents um, leading to kind of quite long-standing injuries illness obviously they live next to a landfill so so they're clearly health problems um, and a lot of her misfortunes are blamed on kind of spirits and and possession. Um, were those be- are those beliefs kind of widely held among communities like the pickers of DNR? And, and kind of where did these where do these beliefs come from? I guess come from in terms of like a history or kind of the the cultural history of the area?
1: Um yeah, yeah. So, um, right since I began working with waste pickers, um, they would tell me um sometimes that, oh, you know, they uh, when they say they made a house, like most houses in these lanes are made of, say, plastic, waste that they brought down from the garbage mountains, right? So they would say, oh, there was a cabiz or a large spirit floating in my house, and the spirit said that this was my space, and, you know, you need to pay me rent for using this space. And so, as, a, as obviously having a background in journalism, and, you know, I always either ignored it or sometimes just questioned it um but as I began uh you know reporting it as a book and I you know um thought of everything that had happened to Farzana there was obviously a scientific and rational explanation which is that there were terrible fires and I obviously recount in great detail um all the different kind of chemicals that abound on these mountains such as methane and hydrogen sulfide and carbon monoxide and you know many of which have uh tremendous um, ill effects on on the health of uh, waste pickers when you inhale it. So, you know, your mental development or asthma or tuberculosis, all of which impact your health. So that could be one reason that, that, that Farzana and many other waste pickers face tremendous ill health. But by the same token, when you were to think That, you know, when West speakers continue to tell me that they saw these spirits and the spirits would trip them, you know, they could fall down on the Kavish mountains or they could be possessed by spirits. The Hindus would tell me this, the Muslims would tell me this. Uh, And uh, I thought that if I was to write it, I had to, I could not just disregard what they were saying. Maybe that, that, that what they were saying also had to have a place in the narrative. And I had to give space to both the the, the, the scientific or more rational, sci- the scientific explanation for this, which could be, oh, it was plastic pollution, it was the smoke that they inhaled. But It could also be, as they said, and they had been saying for so long that there was a shaitan which could have possessed them, or a, a beast, or, or whatever. So you, I had to give space to their narrative also. And I also thought that it was possible that these things had happened, such tremendous amount of policy delays and malaise, like how else are they to understand and internalize um, such tremendous gaps and such tremendous amount of gaps that they live in, gaps in policy, gaps that lead to such Environmental pollution that lead to such um, ill health. How are they to understand and explain it? And maybe this was all they did. They fell back on the ancient myths that they knew. So yes, it's true that this is not the Islam of the book, but it's also true that these these are not myths only related to the waste pickers of Deonar. These are myths that are. there in the in, in lived Islam and also of maybe Hinduism to an extent, like the Chudel. Many Hindus believe it while it's not there. You know, in our in, uh, traditional texts, but these are beliefs, like a shaitan is a belief that is um, that is not only among the waste pickers of the Uran, but it does exist sometimes. And these were the myths that they that they fell back on to rationalize what had happened to them, which was a huge policy gap, like this place is 122 years old and it was supposed to close in 25 years, and the impact that it has on them, how else are they to explain it? And I had to give that equal space. For
0: their explanation of it, it's, it's bring up the fact that that. So, I, I have a few more questions now, kind of about how the government and, and the state, and not just them, but kind of wider Indian society, kind of intrudes on the lives of those in Danar. The first question I have on this is kind of you know, you notice I noticed that you know, most of the people you interview, um, for the book are Muslim, um, and So how does religion play a role in the lives of these communities, both in terms of their daily life, but also um, in terms of these are people living on the fringes of an Indian city. They are also a religious minority. How do these things kind of work in tandem together uh, for the community of waste pickers in Dayanar?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I would say that it's not a coincidence that they are there. as you know, I talk about it, that's, this place began to get, uh, the city basically began to send way, uh, pavement dwellers, street dwellers, people who lived on railway tracks to live around here from the six, late 60s, 70s onwards. Yeah. At that point, there were Muslims, but it was a more mixed community. Um, There were some Hindus who lived here as well. Uh, but then, uh, if you remember, there were uh, when when the Babri Masjid came down in nineteen ninety two, there were riots, and the riots played out quite fiercely in this particular locality, and the the city, Mumbai city, became quite um, you know segregated after that. Um, so um, and and this particular uh, area began getting increasingly segregated too, um, and so now after that it became quite a. a Muslim area, um, they have, there is a particular party where that has all the corporators and the MLA and the MP, etc. Uh, and so in the city, this is seen as a Muslim area. I also found that there were waste pickers who were Muslims um, in other landfills in, in India. I, I found some researchers who were researching the Ahmedabad landfill, the Delhi landfill. There too, these communities are increasingly religious. Some of the characters in my book are Hindu. Um, so, I should point that out. This doesn't. It's not that everyone I interviewed was Muslim, but it is true that this area is Muslim. Um, so, they are here partly due to their marginalization. I did feel that the Hindus who could move out, moved out. And the Muslims continue to stay here, maybe because they could not move out. Um, and that led to an increasing marginalization, where you see that in this area, there's not enough... M- Supplies, whether it's toilets, whether it's water, whether it's um, electricity, and I talk in great detail about how most of the characters in this book are still buying water for their household supplies. They are still um, but, uh, there is still very few toilets. They're using sometimes just the landfill as a toilet. So, so it's a vicious cycle, I would say.
0: So, to kind of talk more about the government. Um, Mumbai's government is like constantly trying to find a way to manage the mountain of trash. The community around it—they uh, never seem able to follow through or willing to follow through. There's constant fights with the courts, um, and so kind of what was the overarching kind of like government role in in looking at DNR and in terms of the community of waste pickers that lived there? Yeah,
1: um, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that the more more public or uh, structured conversation around deorno begins again post colonial in post the colonial period when um, when these court cases you know people uh, begin in 1996 so uh, people who lived in the more gentrified buildings near the garbage mountains <laughs> filed court cases in 1996 saying hey this place is like we're living near this place that is like burning and stinking and it burns all night there's smoke emanating from these garbage mountains that just uh, you know um, travels into our homes and it sickens us it causes asthma and there's lots of doctors who then at that point documented um, you know that there were a uh, various illnesses in this area including uh, respiratory illnesses, um, collapsed lungs, interstitial lung disease. They don't quantify it but they certainly say that living around here causes these illnesses or that there is a much they do quantify that there is a much higher incidence of respiratory illnesses such as asthma etc. In the um, areas in the localities near the garbage mountains compared to those that are away from the mountains this leads to higher mortality leads to low, uh, lower life expectancy like in the water around the garbage mountains life life expectancy was 39 years in 2009 compared to 66 years for other indians so you know certainly this has a role in reduced uh, in the reduced life expectancy among people who live near the garbage mountains so um we be, and the, when the they filed this court case telling, asking the bombay high court that can you shut this place down it's sickening us it's probably killing us um and so um we see the municipal response to it um and and at that point there's already uh, 12 million metric tons of garbage lying there these are already mountains and in their response the you you feel i felt that that you could feel the intractability, the difficulty in moving these garbage mountains. It was, you know, in the colonial period, as I mentioned, this was a swamp. And it's almost as if when the municipality turns back to see this place, it's 12 million metric tons of garbage. It's these towering mountains. It's not easy to move them, right? It's already so difficult to move them. So they do plan uh, from that point onwards, if not even before, they do plan to make a waste to compost plant, then they plan to make a waste to power plant. But they encounter various difficulties, including um the fact that Mumbai is one of the rainiest cities in the world and the garbage is pretty soggy and doesn't is probably not going to work very well. Um, making the viability of this plant not so great right so so they encounter various difficulties they 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 they, they do give out a contract at one point which does not work out um and then they cancel that plant so we see these cycles every time of them trying to do something but in In the end, that after the 2016 fires, they they floated tenders to make a waste to power plant, which also didn't work out. That was supposed to be the country's biggest waste to power plant. It was a response to the epic fires that happened. That didn't, they got no responses for that tender. (laughs) Now they are planning to make a smaller waste to power plant, which is going to come in 2023. And I'm very hopeful. But I suppose my understanding of reading all these documents is that from 1996 onwards, when they do turn back and start looking at it and I could read an institutional response, it seems to me that the Kavish mountains were already intractable. They already seemed unmoving because there was 12 million metric tons of trash. So the municipal officials also in their responses say, this place burns in spontaneous combustion. There's so much waste, it's bound to burn. Even they see it as this thing that is intractable, unmoving. Like, how do we deal with this?
0: So I want to kind of ask for my last few questions, kind of going, I guess, more big picture. What gives the story of Dayanar kind of regional and global relevance? I mean, obviously, this is important for the people of Mumbai. They're kind of living with the effects, the environmental effects, the health effects. Of the landfill, but what is it about the story of Danar and those that live there that's kind of that that gives it kind of wider relevance across the region and potentially the entire globe?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, uh, during the reporting of this book, wherever I traveled and wherever I spoke to someone, they said. Oh my God, this could be Moscow. So this could be Manila. This could be, um, you know, I'm from Italy. Right? One of my editor in the US is from Italy. And she said, Oh my God, Italy has a massive waste management problem, as you might know. Um, or uh, when I when I visited New York, the, the land, the, the so-called landfill of New York, which is fresh kills, was many, many times the size of the UNAR. I wrote an article about it, that it is about nearly 10 times the size of the garbage mountains rise really high and you have a view of the city from there and there's ga- traffic lights in there to direct the garbage trucks which I suppose came endlessly also the garbage mountains there swallowed the debris of the nine eleven of the nine eleven blast the World Trade Towers center basically. Anywhere in the world I went while reporting this book there were garbage l- land mountain landslides in Addis Ababa that killed more than 100 waste pickers in Colombo that also killed people. Uh, I heard endlessly about uh, overgrown landfills in China, in Shenzhen and different kinds of places. Um, In Moscow, a friend of mine told me the garbage, there was what they call the the Mount Everest of garbage. So it seemed to me that these, our unending desires had had poured to make poured out to make these garbage mountains there was a universality to it to our desires that made these mountains not only in Mumbai but elsewhere in fact that probably consumption and waste is many times more in in other countries than it is in our ours it's just one that i live in mumbai so i wrote about mumbai but also we got to see um, waste pickers here and lives made of this waste what are these lives made of it allowed it gave a human dimension to to this problem of waste, which is a global problem, garbage mountains give out methane and carbon monoxide, which are a source of greenhouse, of, of which are greenhouse gases and a source of uh, climate change, etc. But sometimes we think of these as intangible things. But this provided a human, um, this showed lives made of waste, a human
0: dimension to it. So I think that's a great place to wrap. Um... Thank you for listening to the interview with Samia Roy, author of Mountain Tales, Love and Loss, and the Municipality of Castaway Belongings. Samia, I actually have a couple real final questions. Where can people find your work and what's next for you?
1: Oh, um so so my book is um available everywhere. Books are available um in bookstores online. If you are in the US, it's called Castaway Mountain. Uh if you are in the UK or India or something, it's called Mountain Tales. Um what is next for me? I am writing journalistic pieces related to my research. So, around I just did a piece about landfills around the world, not only in Mumbai, um, but but like the landfill in New York and Moscow, etc. So, I am you know looking forward to writing uh, more pieces on this um, related to waste and consumption and climate change and pollution and um, you know all of those issues that have consumed me for so many years. And I hope researchers elsewhere will also be able to use this and write about their own cities, their own countries.
0: So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asia Review Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing authors writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info about who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Samya, for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.